You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. This morning we'll be talking, as you see on the board above, of the Christian moral standard. We know there is a moral standard that is in Christ. You see, we'll be illustrating that this morning with a cart and a horse. I think you understand how those things operate, which goes where. So today, our engine, our driving force, will be our lovely steed. And the moral standard will be the load, the cart, that follows. Let's read from Colossians 3. We find out about the standard to which we're called to live in Christ. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 8. There's a number of passages we we could read. We could make this reading longer or shorter, and certainly from several other places, but we'll make this the, the reading. Colossians 3, 8. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self and its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And the peace of Christ, let it rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Notice how a high a call this morality is. And notice how Christ-centered it is. It's in the image of the one who's created us, not just created us in creation, we've all been made in the image of God, but created us in Christ, created us a new man, a new creation, born again, where Christ is all and in all. There's no hope of this morality without Christ being in the person who's trying to practice it. There's no uh, forgiveness as we ought. The gentleness, the patience, the bearing with one another, the forgiving one another, Unless in verse 13, we've been forgiven first. Having realized that forgiveness, we can then give that type of forgiveness. That we have the peace of Christ in verse 15. 
We have the word of Christ in verse 16. We do it all in the name of Christ in verse 17. And so truly the power of this moral life is Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that without Christ there is no morality at all. There are many people who do not have Christ and do not know Christ. And are they moral people? In many ways, some of them are. And everybody has some morality about them. I mean, there's some, no matter who they are, there's some line that even the bikers, even the meth heads will go, oh, come on, man. <laughs> really? Even those people have a line. Everybody has a morality. So this is not, this is not just a morality that's a better than the world or higher than the world, although it is those, this is again a Christ morality, a Christian morality. Everybody who knows anything about Christ and his followers know that we're called to do that. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Everyone except for the most cynical understands that those who say they are Christians are bound by a moral and ethical code that's pretty high. It's universally known. Even when people reject that moral code, they still recognize that Christians say they're going to follow it, and they call us hypocrites when we don't. Now, sometimes that charge of hypocrisy is right, because we aren't really trying. They're pretending to have Christ without the responsibilities of Christ. Or sometimes they just call out hypocrisy when we have uh, common human failings. Not recognizing that we too know those things are wrong and we're grieved that we sinned, but they'll call any sin by any Christian hypocrisy. And so they reject these standards and sometimes they'll do their best to use these standards against us. But they at least recognize that such a standard is there. Today we have out in the world these new things. Uh, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, but people keep trying to prove him wrong. But uh, uh, today we have these critical theories where they posit that everything is just a power play, that everything is about somebody trying to get something over on somebody, and they'll make that claim that Christian morality is just some form of, I don't know, white supremacy or cultural uh, hegemony or, or capitalist uh, oh, outreach, or I don't know what. But it's always something wrong with it if it's critical theory. Or the people who reject this, uh, the tolerance advocates, uh, they usually reject Christian morality when they're on the wrong side of it, as many do. Uh, but they'll, uh, they'll say, you're not following up to your own standards. Or we say, look, here's what our own standards say in our own old book. And they go, oh, but that old book was just you know, homophobic and misogynistic and, and whatever else anyway. Lately we've had, and we see more of these people becoming prominent through social media where everybody gets a voice and wouldn't it be lovely if everybody got to say everything they wanted all the time to everybody? Well, we have that now. It's not so great. But now on social media, we find all these deconstructionists who they've lost confidence in the Christian faith or at least the version of it they were taught. And I think some of them reject it having never been fully converted into it. But they'll, they'll go and say that these things of, of Christian morality uh, these things are never really uh, done, and we, we, maybe we misunderstood morality. 
Anytime somebody says that, that means they want to do something that the morality said was wrong. You know that. But we have all these that they, they reject it, even while in other ways they pay honor to it. But what we have to realize again, that this, this is in true fact, the real morality we as Christians have must be compelled by a real discipleship to our master. Because the most moral person who ever lived was Jesus Christ. Now, he came to set an example for us to walk in his steps. And he wasn't one who was a great moralist, always going around scolding everybody for all their moral failings. Because he knew they had moral failings. And he died for those moral failings, which we call sin. And he died to redeem us from those things. And, but Jesus was the most moral person ever and caused more morality to happen than any other person. And we, in our discipleship to him, as those who he has saved, we then try to live by his way. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ. We would, wouldn't we all say that today if we're disciples? Have you been raised up with Christ? Only the unbeliever, only the unconverted would not say that. But if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above and not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's, that's where my life is. That's where uh, my thoughts are. That's where my behavior is set. That's why the things that I do are the things that I do. Because of the life that's with Christ and God. Because I've been raised up with him. So we can't have a life below, a mind below. The carnal mind is set on the flesh, it's death in the book of Romans. Or in the book of Philippians, it's this, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's how we did live. That was ours before Christ and outside of Christ. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest. But for the interest of others, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Look out for the interest of others, not for yourself. Last week we studied, or the last two weeks, we studied from John 5. Lord willing, we'll be back there again soon. But Jesus healed the paralyzed man. He told him to take up his pallet and walk. And the Jews cared nothing for him, but only for the fact that he carried his pallet. And they, they wanted to enforce that rule, which was not actually one of the law but a rule of their party who had invented all of these additional things to do to make sure you don't violate the Sabbath. And so did they care that the man was healed? No. But did they care that their rule was broken? That is a practical illustration of this point of not looking after personal interests, but the interest of others. Normally we think of this in a more selfish way. I have a chance to make some money, but it's going to cost Doug. Well, of course I'll make the money. Why would I not make the money, right? Or sometimes, uh, you know, you see people who have the idea that, hey, I found a, a bill on the sidewalk, or I found a bill on the pew. Hey, finders, keepers, that's mine. Well, no, that's, you know, it was on Doug's pew. If I found a bill on Doug's pew, what should I do? Hey, Doug, is this your bill? And he goes, what color is it? And I say, green. He says, yeah, that was the color of the one I had. That's how you know it was Doug's. It was green. All, all, all of yours are green, right? Okay, yeah, they're all green. 
We can easily see if there's a reason to think it was dug, we give it back. But also, when it's not so obvious, but that we actually check, we go out of the way, we spend some time, we spend some effort, we cost ourselves some, yes, in that. But not just that, but in the case like the Pharisees and the paralyzed man. We care more about his healing than our rule. Usually if I set up a rule, I really like it. If I made it a rule, that's how we know we're in the in crowd. No, let's, let's think about the man who was paralyzed. And now he can walk. And so discipleship to our master, following our master, having that set of things lead us is the only way to really have a real Christian morality. Now here's about the longest sentence you'll ever see me put on the overhead. I'll read it. You like it when I read the overhead, right? What you came for. Such full devotion can only be achieved by heartfelt faith, by a true attachment. We can only really have this internalized Christian morality when it is truly heartfelt, when we are truly attached to it. As Paul expressed in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, we're destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to Christ. All our thoughts. There should be no stray and random thoughts that are contrary to Christ. All our thoughts should be directed to Christ. If you see the beams, if you see sunbeams, if you see the rays of the sun, if you ever could trace them, where would they go back to? Well, you know, it's a straight line back to the sun, right? And so sometimes we see through a partially open window, a beam of light, and if there's some dust in the room, there's not dust in my house, but if, if, theoretically, if I'm at a place where there's some dust in the room, and you see the little, the little motes floating, but you see the sunbeam come through, you know, that beam came straight from the sun. You can trace it straight back. Our thoughts, our thoughts should be that way. They can be traced straight back to Christ. Christ is the organizing principle. Christ is the sun. He is the center of it. He is the energy behind it. He is the light that's in it. Is there any light in what I do? I hope. But where did that light originate? It should be traceable right back to the sun. Every thought is captive to Christ. This is one of the great blessings in the new covenant as compared to the old, where people were just born into it. In the new covenant, you come in by faith. In the old covenant, you came into it by birth. And so we have this as a greater blessing in the new, quoting from Jeremiah. It's in Hebrews 8. It's in Jeremiah 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. If we're the people of God, we'll have his law written within us, written in our hearts. And written on our minds. It'll be the things that God put there. And what we find is unlike those Jews who thought. You know what? In order to make sure people get this Sabbath thing right. It says not to work. Nobody work. But let's make sure we have some extra uh, restrictions. Let's put some extra things in there. uh, 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 To make sure everybody knows. Exactly how much of a load you can carry. Exactly how far you can carry it. And various things like that. How heavy a child could you pick up on the Sabbath? Aren't you glad the rabbis debated those things and got that sorted out for you? And somewhere I'm sure you can look it up online. These extra rules don't really help. In fact, they become just a hindrance. Colossians 2, 
and verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you're living in the world, do you submit yourself to such decrees as do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch, which all refer to things which destined to perish with using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? So don't let men tell you what not to handle, taste, or touch. There's a few things that God said not to handle, right? What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7? If you're married, don't be touching another man's wife. Pretty good rule to live by, right? That's a helpful rule. Do we need more than that? All right, and do not taste. And do not touch. Well, in the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of don't taste, right? Don't eat all these foods. On those. There's a forbidden list. What's the forbidden list of New Testament foods? There isn't one, right? These things would be received with the word of God and prayer to be gratefully shared in. These things don't help morality. Would we be more or less moral if we had more or less ham? I don't know. I don't think that affects our morality much. It might affect my happiness, having more or less ham and bacon and sausage, but it wouldn't affect my morality and lessen my grumpiness I sinned because of forced abstinence. But all these things, they have an appearance of wisdom. Why wouldn't that work? Verse 23, these matters, yes, to be sure, have an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-made abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. So against the things that really indulge the flesh, which cause you to go overboard and have too much, having a pure abstinence of these things actually doesn't, doesn't help. You need a mind that's set and a mind that's in Christ. So the problem we have And I think so often that when people think they're rejecting Christian morality, I think what they're actually rejecting is a Christless morality. But there's an awful lot of Christless morality out there. And sometimes that Christless morality, that morality that's unhitched from the horse, that morality may be found in churches, but by people who aren't really disciples. Because they forget in their life and they forget in their actions that this all must be Christ-centered. It becomes them-centered. It becomes about them. Just because one attends a worship service to Christ doesn't mean they're a dedicated and true disciple. How many people do we know are terrible? We're sure they're terrible disciples. We know them by their fruits. And yet somewhere they go to church on sometimes. And people reject them for their uncharitableness for their holier-than-thou-isms, for their bitter and harsh judgmentalism, what do they think they're rejecting? They think they're rejecting Christ and Christian morality. But in fact, they're rejecting a Christless, uncharitable morality. You know, again, our forgiveness, our should-be radical extension of forgiveness to people, is based on the full forgiveness that we've got in Christ. And what if we don't have that in Christ? How forgiving do you think we're going to be to others? We're not going to be very forgiving. But because we might go to church somewhere on some occasion, people go, oh, well, that's what church is and that's what Christians are. And they're rejecting a reduced version, a a hollow version, actually an unholy version of morality, but they think it's the morality of Christ. 
If we're not real disciples, if we're not living truly in the steps of the master, how many different kinds of immoralities will we slide into? What kind of coldness and harshness toward others will we pursue? And because some of the people who do these things go to some kind of thing that calls itself a Christian outfit on some occasions, people think, oh, I'm rejecting the things of Christ. And if that's Christ, I don't want any part of it. Uh, Gandhi, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, the, the famous one of India, that Gandhi, there's been a lot of Gandhi, but the, the big famous Gandhi, he one time said, and he was trained and educated in England, and he was a Hindu, uh, but and he, he said, he said, I like your Christ, but I don't like many of your Christians. At least he recognized there was a difference, but many don't. And many don't make that subtle of a distinction. But think about all the kind of unholinesses we can follow into or fall into without being on the true path of discipleship. This is in Ephesians 4.19. They, the Gentiles, these are who did not know God, they became callous, I guess so, having given themselves over to sensuality and the practice of every kind of greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. But some who claim to follow Christ, evidently in Ephesus, were acting that way. If indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Paul's saying some of y'all need to lay aside that old self. You haven't done it yet, even though you claim to have learned and heard and taught and be in Christ. You need to lay aside that old self, which is corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new self. That's an instruction partly that you who are in Christ did that, but that's also an instruction to many in the congregation that you need to get about doing that. And so there is an unholiness which sometimes falls under and is carried under the name of Christ. And when that's only partially done, we find there's an external, external form that's followed without the heart of it. An externalized form without the heart of it. In Luke 13, we recently studied in our Wednesday night class of the synagogue official, a man taught by the law. A man who in his synagogue, a woman of long-standing illness was healed, bent double for what was it, 18 years? And he complained to Jesus when Jesus healed the woman and said, Luke 13, 14, becoming indignant, he'd healed on the Sabbath. He says to the multitude, there are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, look, I came to your synagogue for one day and I healed this lady. She's been one of your synagogue members for almost two decades. And, and your reaction is not, thank goodness Sister Sarah can stand up. Your reaction is, oh no, Jesus did a miracle wrong? That is external form gone fully to seed. This last week, John and I did a little mowing, some of the last mowing of the year. And man, the Bermuda grass everywhere has gone to seed. It knows the days are short, and it has sprouted up all these little waxy things. It is trying to seed out one last time and get everything put in the ground before winter. And it's my job to go cut it off and try to get it not to do that. Look tolerable every day as people drive by, but 
man, it has gone, the, the grass has gone to seed. And that's what this unholy, externalized, missing the whole spirit of immorality has done in many places in our society. It has sprouted out and it has gone to seed where there is something of a moral code, but not Christ behind it. Where there is a hollowed out set of restrictions that people are told you should do and you shouldn't do. And maybe those rules are good and maybe they're not, but nobody can tell them why. And, and even when they, people can tell them why they are good, they're not living them themselves and they're living lives of hypocrisy. And there's no power in it. And it all just feels uh, heartless. It all just feels out of touch. It all just feels inauthentic. And it feels so bad. This is why some of these you know, critical theorists come along and say, it's all just a power play where one person gets to oppress another. And there's a lot of people go, yeah, I feel oppressed. Well, some of them know you feel immoral. But others of them, yeah, it is being impressed upon you, this outside code that they don't understand and you don't understand. And the all of it together lacks the lively power of God living in you. Isn't that where the Christian moral code starts and stops? With Christ living in us. Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If you have Christ dwelling in your heart through faith, you're probably not going to be like that synagogue official who says, you did a miracle wrong. You'll probably go, oh, I'm really glad that lady got healed. Or the guy that took up his pallet and walked on the Sabbath day in John 5. The problem is not that he had his pallet. The problem is that he was paralyzed. And, but now the, the solution is he can walk and we'll get with that pallet stuff later. Today, that's not that important. Now, if he, if he starts up, you know, uh, Yosef's pallet moving business, open seven days a week, right? Rapid Sabbath delivery. Okay, we're going to have to have a talk about what the Sabbath says because we're not going to do rapid, you know, rapid Sabbath day delivery because that's work. But if you're just taking it home because you're healed, that's not the same situation. So we let the word of Christ, Colossians 3.16, richly dwell within us. The word of Christ richly dwell within us. That passage goes on to say, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing and singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And hopefully as we go through our life, aren't there times where our heart just sings us a psalm, sings us a hymn? Why is that there? Why does that crop up at that time? Because that's living in us. And the words and the teachings of Christ are written in our hearts. And our heart is reminding us of what we're doing. So, we have this Christian moral system that works really well for Christians. And it's Christ-empowered. It's Christ-driven. And we have this other morality out there without Christ. And sometimes it's a counterfeit and a copy of Christ. It, it's a real, you know, the kids today, they, uh, you know, they don't get like, you know, fifth generation mimeographs anymore, right? Because the copy machines are a little better and we have an original PDF and we can reprint that. But remember, for those of you who remember, you got a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And you're like, what? what is that? My grade depends on this and I can't read it. That's how some people feel about morality when they haven't been taught. And so we, want, we don't want this Christless morality. But we do at the same time want to commend to people and recommend to people 
basic morality is beneficial to them even before or outside of Christ. Basic morality is still beneficial before and outside of Christ, even if you don't have Christ in, you know, being the driving power of it. So it doesn't fully accomplish its morality's intended purpose of good works that glorify God. But what we find is, is that if we have a basic morality, and this is why we need to uphold basic morality, even to people who aren't Christians and who have rejected it, and to our children before they come to know Christ, we need to uphold basic morality because it's a protection against the worst of abuses. The law was a tutor to bring people to Christ. Law and morality can still help with that today. It can still be a tutor and a help. It'll keep people from becoming hardened in things that are hard to get out of. It will protect them. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we find out this about the law. Paul said, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the law is not going to save you. No one is saved by works of the law. Paul is very clear about that. But the law is still good if we use it for the right things. Because we realize the law is not made for the righteous man. Oh, it's not? No. The law was made for the lawless. They're the ones who need the law. The righteous man doesn't need the law. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, how much law do we need? We're following the Spirit of Christ. We don't need that law. But... The lawless man still does. The rebellious man still does. The godless man, the sinner, the unholy and the profane. Those who kill father and mother. Oh, yeah, those people still need thou shalt not kill. I didn't read the story. saw the terrible headline this week. Police arrest bloody teen. Subheadline, admits to killing parents with an axe and a hatchet. Boys, no ideas. That That was a newspaper headline. That guy needed the law. That guy needed a big dose of external thou shalt not kill, didn't he? That guy needed that. And so many things. If we just taught, if we just had them learn the commandments, you know, don't mess with other people's property. Don't be profane. Don't be covetous. Don't be lustful. Isn't that kind of the summary of the Ten Commandments? How much easier would life be at school? How much less work would the, would the police have to do? If we just had that, that's why we need the law. For those who kill their father and mother, okay. Uh, for the murderers, the immoral men, the homosexuals, the kidnappers, the liars, and the perjurers. And whatever else is con- contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. So we've got a glorious gospel of the blessed God, which tells us basic morality, and that's helpful for everybody. And following these things, it reduces hindrances to discipleship. You know, if you're in sports, there's an old saying, you can't win the game in the first quarter. Last week and this week both, Texas tried to prove that. And they did. You can't lose the game, or you can't win the game part in the first quarter. But you know, there are some teams that have done so bad in the first quarter they've lost it. They don't really have any hope anymore because they've done so poorly. There are people in the first quarter of life have done so poorly, particularly those who get trapped in heinous sins, things like heinous sins, things like um, uh, well, it mentioned here homosexuality and immorality and lying and perjury. People who get trapped in terrible moral sins or people who get caught in, in things that uh, end them in incarceration. They, they, they barely started their life and there already seems to be no path for redemption in it. If they had the basic morality, they could have stopped that. But every sinful practice 
we have is a barrier to our ultimate conversion to Christ. Every sinful practice, every sinful habit, every illicit relationship, every destructive relationship, these things are destructive to our and hindrances to our redemption. It doesn't mean it can't be done. And haven't people been saved out of the worst of situations? They have been. But why put up all those hindrances if we don't have to? They're easily avoided. Hebrews 12, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up causing trouble by it. Many are defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know, afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. So there are people who would like things to be differently in their lives. But at this stage in their life, now because of their immorality over the years, there's bitterness, there's hindrances, there's immorality, there's godlessness, there are consequences to the things they do that make it really hard for them to be saved. And some basic morality, a basic moral framework would have helped them. Instead, what we need before Christ and outside of Christ to support a thing that is now often called behavior modeling. Psychologists and human development people, and I'm greatly, greatly simplifying this. They basically say, follow the role model of what you want to be. Act like and begin to act like where you hope to end up. And you end up laying a path toward that. Right? But so many times in, in our emotional age, people say, well, I just don't feel that way. We don't care how you feel sometimes. We just need you to do the right thing. You do the right thing, and what happens later? Sometimes the feelings come along. The feelings are also often like this card on the screen. Feelings and emotions follow where you go. And so you can't let your emotions drive you. You cannot do that. And so just act in the right way until it feels like it's the right way. Again, I greatly oversimplified that. And we realize that this could also be training for your eventual life in Christ. This is particularly why we have these moral things that we enforce with the children. We're training them for the life that we hope they'll have. They don't all pursue it. They don't all grab hold of it. They don't all confess such faith, but we hope that they will. So we train them in the ways of the gospel before they understand why Christ is empowering this. And we're trying to get them to live as though Christ is living in them, even though Christ isn't yet. And I, I, speaking as a you know, recovering teenager myself, sometimes that's a great deal of conflict when you're in that age. Right? Or maybe it's even beyond that age of teenage years. But when you come to Christ, and we get that cart hooked up to the power, to the power source, then it works properly. So, we'll just summarize with this. Christ's immorality, fully functional, only when properly ordered. Right? It, it, it doesn't work if, if morality is headed one way and Christ is headed the other. It doesn't work fully if we try to get Christ, uh, you'll, you'll get the morality before and without Christ. It doesn't work if we don't team them up. But it does work if we team them up right. And so I'm, so I'm sure you can see by those four illustrations on the board, there's only one of those that you would really want to work, right? Or really set up so it could work. And so we need to make sure we get the order right. And so 
let's not, when people have these things uh, not hooked up, uh, let's not be surprised when Christians, uh, excuse me, when non-Christians don't act morally like Christians. Why would they? And actually, even how could they? But let's also realize if we're in a place of training and influence, if we're in a place where we're trying to help people, then we need to get them, you know, where it can be matched up and get them headed in the right direction so that one day it can possibly and hopefully work. But for those of us who are faithful in Christ, been raised with Christ, for whom Christ is in all and is all, that Christ rules our hearts, that he forgave us, that he now has given us his peace and his word and it's written in our hearts and minds, we realize what a great blessing. What a great blessing. And it shouldn't be a holier-than-thou attitude of, hey, I got this working and you don't. Because somebody had to, you know, get us hitched up. I don't think we hitched up ourselves all the time, did we? We had some help, and that help was mainly in Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.